electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, fresh fear factors from China. In addition to the red-hot rhetoric of the U.S. and Beijing decoupling, there are now new worries about a rising wave of COVID that could infect more than 65 million in China every week. A deep dive on the challenges China faces straight ahead. Plus, the real estate storm, why one industry exec says we are in the middle of an office space hurricane and investors better prepare for things to keep getting worse. Then later, raising a glass to Netflix as the stock turns 21. The spending fade for all those uh, do-it-yourselfers at home and the trouble in the charts for two retail giants. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Rebecca Patterson, the former chief investment strategist at Bridgewater Associates. And we start off with two big risks coming out of China. First, rising trade tensions between the U.S. and Beijing. Apple, the latest company to act, inking a multi-billion dollar deal with Broadcom to develop 5G chips in the United States. This after China slapped rival chipmaker Micron with a ban, citing it as a security risk. Today's news helps send Broadcom shares to all-time highs, the stock rising over a percent. And then there's the renewed threat of COVID in China. One health expert estimating a new wave could result in 65 million cases a week by the end of June. NBC hasn't been able to independently verify that report. Still, the news sends shares of vaccine makers like Moderna soaring today. Those shares seeing their best day of the year, up more than 8%. So let's begin with that scary headline of a new COVID wave in China. Bring in Dr. Kavita Patel, NBC News medical contributor, former White House health policy director during the Obama administration. Um, Dr. Patel, great to have you with us. Can you put this wave in context, um, you know, the XBB variants and, and whether or not, you know, you would think that people, I don't know if the people in China have had COVID uh, in terms of the penetration that we've seen here in the United States. So is there some sort of immunity or less immunity there? Yeah, Melissa, a couple of things to put things into context. First of all, anytime you hear these kinds of numbers coming out of China, you do have to take it seriously. And we don't know if we've kind of seen the peak of what their cases are. I know those are predictions about cases at the end of June, but it's difficult to say. But suffice it to say, XBB is the circulating variant around the globe, and we know it's a more easy variant to give and to get. It's more infectious, if you will. And and to kind of think about where China is right now, remember, because of the severe lockdowns, we have kind of an uneven immunity immunity patterns. So we do see some of these reinfections, which is what we saw in the United States, people who have had one, two, three, even four, five infections, but not as many of the kind of broader based vaccine induced immunity. If you'll recall, they haven't had really mRNA vaccines in China. They've been using kind of older technology. And because of their lockdown policies, they had had a very different distribution of the types of people that were infected. So I think the critical things to look at One, it would not be shocking, Melissa, to see an uptick in cases globally, as well as in the United States. That could trail weeks to months. But the question is, are we seeing more hospitalizations? Are we seeing severe cases? And if we are, what kind of people? Is it older people, people who have never had infections, people who are not vaccinated? And then I think ultimately, the reason you're seeing not just Moderna, Pfizer, other stocks trading up is that it's renewing calls for an updated vaccine. Even the vaccine that we have in the United States isn't the most current variant protective vaccine. 
vaccine. So this is renewing the calls we've had in the country for some time now to have a much more updated vaccine faster and in a rapid dissemination fashion. How would you gauge, and I know it's very difficult to do, um, what the public health response might be in China? I mean, they've had, they had COVID zero, then they completely flip-flopped on that. And at this point, we're hearing reports of sudden shutdowns of events, uh, concerts, conferences, movie theaters, et cetera. Um, will that sort of containment work with this variant? Or do you think that yeah, they're so just going to say, let it, let it go, let's see? In, in which case, for us and for investors, the concern would be a shutdown of ports, a shutdown of manufacturing facilities, et cetera. Right. The supply chain demands that we've been talking about mm -hmm. for so long that we know that China is kind of sitting at the center and, and, and even the drug supply chain that's still causing problems around the globe. So I think, number one, we have to take a step and look at shutting down concerts and shutting down events certainly did not do enough in the United States. It was really kind of a three-pronged strategy. We really needed to put in better surveillance. We've seen that with wastewater. Something that's troubled me is that the China CDC, if you will, has also drawn back on its surveillance mechanisms, much like what we're doing, Melissa, in the United States, right? We're not doing as much of the monitoring, although we have some systems in place for wastewater detection, which can help see what we're, you know, what we're, what variants are more current, what we're seeing in the United States. We don't have that necessarily in China. And so we have a kind of a blind spot. Shutting down a concert won't really do you much good if you have the virus in other pockets, which can spread easily. And we know XBB can. I think the second part of this is vaccination. We know that vaccination doesn't prevent transmission, but it can provide that really good layer, especially for the vulnerable. And then the third prong is treatments. And I think that's where if the United States had to do something today to heed this warning, it would be to kind of make sure all three of those arms of the public health response are ready to be activated. I would like to think they are, Melissa, but I have to tell you, you walk around, you know, the United States today, it feels like people have thought this is over. And yeah. I think the news coming out of China reminds us this is not over. All right. Dr. Patel, thank you so much for putting it all into perspective for us. Dr. Kavita Patel. Thank you. Um, let's trade this. Rebecca, how do you how do you sort of digest this? Well, I think there's two downside risks to mm -hmm. worry about. One is within China. If they do do lockdowns, you're going to see a very quick pullback in services. We're seeing that priced into some stocks, but not broadly yet at a vulnerable time. Mm -hmm. I mean, youth unemployment at 20 percent in China consumer confidence low, property sector already weak, government saying they don't want to stimulate a lot more. So this would come in a bad time domestically. But then to the point you made during the interview, if they say, let it fly, right? Natural immunity, what'll be, will be. But how, do the rest of, how does the rest of the world respond? Do we start preventing Chinese from coming in other countries again? Is it going to spread? How bad is that spread going to be? What kind of wave could we see? I mean, I doubt any of us have had a booster in several months at least. Yeah. So there is some vulnerability globally that this could spread and we could see another mini wave. And, and to her right. point, are we ready? So I, I do think this is a risk that we need to be thinking about pretty strongly over the next quarter, at least. I mean, whether or not China actually decides to say we're going to shut certain cities down or certain sectors of cities down or to say natural immunity, let's let this go. It seems like the, there is upside risk at this point to a disruption in the supply chain. Which is extraordinarily inflationary. That got right. us into the problem exactly. in the first place. That's something you've been talking about. Yeah, it's a problem. And the FXI, if you want to, again, we understand the health concerns, and we're all sympathetic to that. That's not our mandate here. But 
In terms of the trade, the FXI is at a pretty precarious level if you look at it. This sort of 27.5, 28 level has been support for quite some time. There's the chart right there. You can see it. You know, close below 27, things get dicey. And so many of these stocks that have been basically carried up on the wave, a lot of the casino stocks we talked about, starting to take it out to the woodshed a little bit here. One has to wonder, though, it's the inflationary aspect of this that's made a Fed's job difficult. Again, if this comes to fruition, that much more. Well, I would just add, not just inflationary, stagflationary, mm-hmm. which makes the Fed's mm-hmm. job doubly worse. But I think it's, it's also deflationary in some ways, right? If China slows down. Right. Demand is lower. Demand is lower. Like, right. We see commodities lower, and that's, def- you know, that's good for the inflation fighting story. But to sort of translate, if you look at some of the stocks like luxury, which I own, that had a, just a terrible day today, uh, you know, on the fears of that China was really growing again and that that's where luxury is really making a lot of money. Wynn Resorts, you know, a number of Macau-related things. But when you ask the question about would they just let it run, mm-hmm. does that mean that you continue to operate ports even if some of your workers are sick? You stay open or you come to work sick? I don't know. Is that uh, yeah, as I mean, opposed to I, a real shutdown? I, I guess they could, in theory, come to work sick if they are well enough to work, to work, well, even if they're infected. they did the contained yes. bubbles, right? right? So they had workers stay within certain right, zones like and allowed yes. to leave. Right. But that still created a lot of supply chain problems because you had transportation of a good to another place for mm-hmm. assembly to the port. Right. So you still had a huge, huge amount of damage to the supply chain, even with the bubbles. I'm sure I'm using the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Right. Closed systems yes, or whatever. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you, you know, your point about luxury. I mean, I don't know if you saw Tesla, and I look at it like probably every tick every day. Um, <laughs> it, it added almost a 4% reversal from its highs yeah. today. It was breaking out. It was kind of um, above this kind of downtrend it's been in over the last few months or so. And I think once those sorts of fears started kind of working their way through the market, you think to yourself, okay, what were some of the issues that they had about missing deliveries or slow demand in a place like China? It's these sorts of things. And I think right. that, you know, there was all this optimism about China doing this about face on the zero COVID. You know, when we think about that Q1 GDP print that we saw in China, it was like 4.5% or something. I mean, they were doing six eight, six, nine in the in the few years in the lead up to 2020, right, into the pandemic. So the fact that we've really never had this great contribution from the China reopening trade, and, you know, I was looking at it today. Have you guys seen Freeport? Have you seen Alcoa? Have you seen, you know, um, BTU? I mean, these stocks look like we are about to be in a global recession right now. They're not trading particularly well. Uh, well, crude oil can't get out of its own way in and around this like kind of low 70s or so. So there's lots of like, things in the stock market that are not the shiniest things in the NASDAQ that are actually flashing some warning signs that don't seem to be evident in the major indices here in the U.S. Yeah, uh, it seems like investors would not be prepared, prepared mentally, whether it be, you know, thinking about uh, the disruptions or pricing it into valuations for a supply chain disruption again at this point. It feels like everybody thought those or inventory issues coming back again for right. the retailers. They had right. just gone through. But well, what if Footlocker's we- got the inventory covered? Right. <laughs> exactly. But no, I understand but, your you know, point. They right. were just, this was sort of a nice bounce for a lot of right. them where they Finally. did have inventory. Right. Right. But then back yes. to schools around the corner. And then you have this again. I mean, these uh-huh. are things that just have not been on our radar in so long. Because yeah. people, the same way people, we talk about it here, people are tired of be, being bearish in the stock market. Right. There's fatigue around this entire issue, which you can totally understand. Doesn't mean it's going to go away. And to sort of continue the conversation. The major retailers, Target and Walmart, Target's at a five and a half, six month low, and Walmart has this major double top around 158. 
and it hasn't traded particularly well since earnings release. So you have to start looking at these things, connecting the dots and saying, wait a second, maybe there's something more here. We will have a little bit more on those charts later on in the show. Yeah. Meantime, let's focus now on what a full U.S.-China decoupling could mean for the trade and policy relationship between the two countries. The former National Economic Council's Deputy Director, Cleet Willems, joins us now with that. Cleet, great to have you with us. Thank you. It, Good to be here. It, it seems like damned if you do, damned if you don't in terms of, of raising China's national security concern and trying to isolate it. You know, you can be seen as weak and allowing the security concern to be an issue. Um, but this will be at the expense of the economy if you do say we are going to treat this as a real issue and say, you know what, we're not going to we're going to sever those ties with China. You're absolutely right. And the U.S. right now is struggling to get that balance. You know, when I was in the Trump administration, our view is that we hadn't done enough as a government to deal with some of the unfair practices in China, to deal with some of the threats that they were posing to to U.S. national security. But I think in some ways we're at risk of overcorrecting here. And this whole notion of we need to decouple our economy from China is something that you hear folks talking about more and more on the Hill. And quite frankly, you know, that's something that could be catastrophic. And just to give you a sense of this, you know, our trade last year with China was $690 billion. They were our number three trading partner. They're the number one export destination for U.S. agricultural products. 20% of of our ag products that are exported go to China. And so I think we need to be careful. And we do need to protect U.S. national security interests. We do need to be tough on unfair trade practices, but we need to be strategic about it. And we need to look at de-risking and strategic decoupling rather than trying to completely sever our economic ties. It sounds like the de-risking was the word of the day at the latest G7 meeting in Japan. So they're trying to move away from decoupling and say, let's be more strategic. Let's be more fine-tuned about this. But there's a difference between that and actually the United States striking new trade deals with, with friends. Um, and, and I know that you've been of the view that we're not doing enough of that. And the sense I got from the U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, is that politics is policy. And if politics right now on both sides of the aisle is that globalization is not something voters want and trade deals are going to be hard pressed to get through Congress, um, can you have new trade deals, even if it's in the U.S.'s interest for national security reasons? You know, critical mineral countries, for example. Can we get new trade deals? Do you think it's politically possible? I I do, absolutely. And I look back at this agreement that we used to know that was called NAFTA, that was really unpopular in the United States. And we figured out a way to renegotiate it, and we came up with the USMCA. And the point there is we can do trade agreements. They just need to be good trade agreements. And I have been quite frustrated with the administration They talk about friendshoring and working with allies and partners and how that's a key part of their de-risking strategy, but they aren't creating any economic incentives to really do that. And that's where these these trade agreements come into play. And this is critical for all sorts of different supply chains. If we want to move supply chains out of China, we need to be working with partners and allies through trade agreements. Cleet, the wild card is China-Taiwan, um, I would imagine, because that will be bipartisan. What, game that out. What are the chances of something happening there? I think it's a real threat. And uh, I was talking this afternoon with a colleague of mine in Beijing, and uh, she asked me, how come no one in the United States is taking this seriously? Basically, what I see happening in China 
is that they are really preparing. They're on a war footing. They're thinking about um, what that kind of invasion would look like. And why isn't the U.S. taking this seriously? And I, and I think that's a great question. You know, I think that this is a realistic aim of Xi Jinping, something that he could look to do in the next four to five years. And we need to be acting now um, to be both thinking about how we can deter them militarily. I, I think another part of that is trade agreements and thinking about how we can help Taiwan diversify its supply chains away from China. Right now, they're 40 percent dependent on China for trade. And that gives China a tool of economic coercion. And so we need to figure out how can we help them diversify? How can we do trade agreements with them so that China can't coerce them as a precursor to an invasion? So I, I think this is something we need to take more serious than we are. We need to not just have a military deterrent strategy, but also an economic deterrent strategy. And um, I hope that's something you see uh, coming out of, out of this administration and this Congress. It seems to me, Cleet, though, that one of the biggest risks is being cut off from Taiwan as a supplier of chips. They supply 90 percent of the advanced yeah. semiconductor trip chips globally. And Taiwan is two to three generations ahead of the U.S. in terms of chips, 10 nanometers and below. This all according to Barclays in a note overnight. Um, and so, I mean, losing that access would just be basically, you know, cutting off at the at the ankles. Um, global manufacturing of advanced infrastructure, devices, et cetera. I agree with you. And this is the, the, the long-term risk that we need to be, be thinking about. And, you know, the U.S. has tried to address this through the CHIPS bill and things like that. And, you know, I think that will help to a limited degree. Um, but we absolutely need to be, be doing more. We need to be um, doing more than just subsidizing. I think we also need to look at what are the conditions to make sure we remain an innovative place to do business. Uh, I'd like to see more talk about having a competitive tax and regulatory environment. I mean, I think that's the best way that you, you deal with this issue. If you wanna bring more uh, manufacturing on shore, make it more cost effective to do so. And at the same time, look at all those measures that I was talking about before, about how we uh, help Taiwan um, deter China and, and, and stand up to either military or economic coercion. Cleet, thank you. Appreciate it, Cleet Williams. You. So those are the dangers. Imagine you get cut off from, from uh, minerals out of China, rare earths, you get cut off from advanced semiconductors, and then what happens? Catastrophic. I mean, I'm not yeah. trying to be hyperbolic here, but it's it really be. bad. And if you, if you follow Kyle Bass, which you should, he's on the Squawk Box every, every once in a while. I mean, he's been talking about this for the last couple of years, and he does extraordinary work. And then when Cleet says that we're not paying enough attention to it, you have to listen to these people. Yeah. Dan, what do you think? Um, yeah, it, it is interesting to see that like folks like him, you know, they say it's like years out, like like some sort of invasion or some sort of, sort of thing, right? It doesn't seem like it's on the doorstep here. And so, again, I think a lot of our multinationals are really moving their feet right now. And you see, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the Apple Broadcom thing. I mean, yeah. all everything incrementally, I think, makes sense. But like at the end of the day, what's one of the stickiest parts of inflation that we have here in the U.S.? It is wages, right? So I don't know how you reshore a lot of these jobs unless it's just literally some entree until we get to some sort of automation where, you know, we really do have machines making machines here because in the near term, it's the thing that probably keeps rates higher because inflation is going to be sticky. I was just driving through Phoenix recently, and if you go down the main highway there, you see the new chip plants starting to be built. These right. things are blocks and blocks and huh. blocks. They're enormous. It's going to take years to get them up and running. But to your point on inflation, 
the workers in America cost a heck of a lot more than the workers in Taiwan. Taiwan gives much more government subsidies to those companies than we're going to give here, even though we're given a lot. So it is going to be more expensive. Um, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, just the other day, they're starting an electric vehicle battery plant in Ontario, VW uh, agreement, huge subsidies. He said, our workers cost more. Environmental protection in Canada is yeah. different than China. It's inflationary. So all of this portends for a longer term, slightly higher level inflation than what we've enjoyed for the last or, or dealt with for the yeah. last 20 years. Two percent seems like a dream at this point, right? <laughs> for some, at least. Yeah. All right. Coming up, we are watching Toll Brothers after our shares on the move after posting results. The details from the quarter next. And speaking of the home building space, Lowe's jumping on a top and bottom line beat this morning. But it wasn't all glossy paint and power tools for the retailer. But the company is forecasting with fast money returns. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Toll Brothers. Shares of the home builder popping after reporting a beat in the top and the bottom lines with earnings per share coming in nearly a dollar higher than estimates. Kate Rogers got the details. Kate. Melissa, as you said, better than expected quarter for Toll Brothers. Home sales revenues up 14% year-on-year. Gross margins were 26.4%, up more than 2% from Q2 of 2022. The company's CEO, Douglas Yearly Jr., said, quote, as mortgage rates have stabilized and buyer confidence has improved, the increase in demand that began in January has continued through our second fiscal quarter and into the start of our third quarter. He said in light of this, they're raising full-year guidance by nearly every metric. Yearly added that supply demand imbalance is set to continue well into the future, adding to the long-term tailwinds that have supported the housing industry in recent years. He said these include favorable demographics, migration trends, and more flexible work arrangements. As you said, the stock is up by more than 3% on the report, up by more than 27% year-to-date. Melissa, back over to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers. Karen, what do you think? There was a lot to like, actually, in that, right? I mean, it showed a lot of strength. I think orders up, closings up, backlog was okay, average selling price in line. I mean, there was a lot to like. You'd think that if you listen to all the other stuff happening, we'll get to Lowe's and and Home Depot and interest rates and mortgage rates being back up. I mean, we could talk about it again and again. The supply-demand dynamic is still... That's so strong. far out of whack, and these, not just told, but others have done a really good job of managing through this and not getting over their skis, not overbuilding, but building profitably, and the margins were good. It was, there was a lot to like. Yeah, I mean, average mm-hmm. selling prices staying up with mortgage rates higher, that's, that's really a tremendous win here. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
I, I would, on a forward-looking basis, wonder how long they can keep the guidance where it is, given that you are seeing housing. It has picked up recently with mortgage rates coming down, but now we're back above 7% for a 30-year mortgage. So it's climbed back up. And as the consumer slows down later this year, as the Fed hikes feed through, I wonder if the demand is going to hold up the way it did in recent months. But wouldn't you thought you have seen that already, given how much mortgage rates have moved, which is We have. Enormous. I mean, if you look at like the housing data we got this morning, the housing data we've gotten in the last week was, was good. Um, but it's been incredibly volatile over yeah. the last few months. And if you go year on year, we're already down a lot, to your point. So the housing market has already softened. The companies are adjusting as appropriate. We saw that in their, their um, report today. But I think the, the trend over the next 12 months is going to be for a continued slowing in the housing market, just bumpy. And so the question is, can companies like Toll Brothers continue to navigate that well? The supply, to your point, I totally agree, helps them. Uh, Karen mentioned Lowe's, so let's piece yep. that one in. Lowe's topping the tape, posting a top and a bottom line beat before the bell today. The stock almost 2% higher as investors seemingly shrugged off. A cut to the retailer's full-year outlook like Home Depot. Lowe's is getting hit by lumber deflation, softer demand, leading to weaker same-store sales in this quarter, Guy. Yeah, but if you look, and we talked about Home Depot, the quarter wasn't great, mm-hmm. but we said the stock should have traded a lot worse than it yeah. did. And if you remember, I think it got down to... I want to say 281 or so. It was only down four bucks on the day. Since then, it's rallied. It's a valuation thing. I mean, these stocks, in terms of historically where they've been, they're actually cheap compared to themselves and probably trading a market multiple now. So the fact that they've come off so much, I don't think the quarters were as disastrous as people were anticipating, which is why these stocks go up. Lowe's has been in a sort of this range 185 to 225 for a while. We're going to get towards the upper end of the range. But Home Depot, I would think, acquitted itself pretty well last week. In the spectrum of retailers, is home improvement more defensive, Karen, in this environment? Than discretionary, than, than other, lower end than, discretionary? Than a Target, than a Nordstrom, than a, any other retailer out there. I mean, is there something to be said for people bought these homes and mm-hmm. they've got to do something with it. there's some amount of maintenance work that right, regardless exactly. of whether that they you, will yes. fix the roof, they will retile, they will regrout, whatever right. it is. I think so. I think, yeah, I think that, uh, well, their PEs reflect the expectation mm-hmm. that they will have a more steady business going forward than a retailer, which has a lower PE multiple. So I own both uh, Lowe's and Home Depot. Um, they, I, I'm comfortable owning them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they trade a little lower, a little higher. With If you're right, if housing slows, they'll trade a little lower. But long term, this is lo- low, as the guy said, PE, and it's lower than the market now. Yeah. I think we got to go back to what Rebecca just said about like the lag effect. And I know we talk about this a lot, and we just haven't seen it in a while because we haven't seen a rate hike cycle like this. But think about this. Housing makes up between 15 and 20 percent of U.S. GDP, right? And so we just talked about 30-year fixed mortgage rates at like 7.5 percent or something like that. Every car dealership right now has too many cars on their lots. But you don't want to buy a new car right now because you don't want to finance it at that sort of rate, right? And so, like, think about this. It's like, yes, your wages might be a little higher, but we've seen a lot of white-collar jobs be cut over the last few months or so. I just feel like that if there's any softness anywhere, like if you start to see this dynamic, this supply-demand dynamic, just just soften because of rates. I just feel like there's a lot of pockets of strength right now. Energy was one of them last year, you know what I mean? Then it's starting to kind of fall off a little bit. I just feel like like, the, the foundations for the economy are not that solid when you consider that rates are not going down anytime soon unless something really bad happens in the next six to nine months. I mean, the thing that's holding us up now is that when we talk about wages and people's ability to buy a home or buy the stuff to improve their home, 
80% of the jobs in the United States are service sector jobs. And manufacturing is in a recession. We saw that in latest PMI's business sentiment surveys, but the service sector is still doing pretty well. And so as long as that one holds in and those jobs don't get lost, I think they will. I think it's coming, but we're not there yet, which is why I'm not that surprised to see the numbers from Toll Brothers and Home Depot. Like, we're still okay because the service sector is so strong, but that's the next shoe to drop, I think. Coming up, some more After Hours Movers. Palo Alto, VF Corp. on the move after reporting. We've got the details on the results next. Plus, the commercial real estate storm is here. And our next guest says it's only going to get worse. Why he is shorting the entire office space sector. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks dropping as debt ceiling negotiations dragged on. The Dow falling more than 200 points in both the S&P and Nasdaq, sinking more than 1%. Some after-hours action in Palo Alto and VF Corp. Both stocks higher after reporting beats on the top and the bottom lines. Meantime, CNBC's CEO Council Summit is underway right now out in beautiful Santa Barbara, California. That doesn't look too bad. (laughs) Here's what Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon had to say about inflation and what it means for the Fed. There's no question that, you know, peak inflation has come off. Um, you know, when I've, when I've talked publicly about this in the last couple of months, I, I sense that it's going to be stickier. It's come off its peak, but it's going to be stickier and more resilient, which is why, you know, we're kind of managing and expecting that while the Fed may pause and it will be data dependent, you know, you might need to see higher rates, you know, to ultimately control it some more. It's like... You are in his head, guy. Oh, he watches the show religiously. Head in terms of it's craziest thing. And I happen to agree with him, as I should, because we've been saying it here for a while. Yeah. Jamie Dimon said that. He had three Fed speakers over the weekend are basically saying the only people that the only thing that's not listening right now seems to be the market because interest rates are starting to listen as well. So it's right out there. The Fed has told you what they want to do. They've told you, listen, inflation is a problem. Rates are going to remain higher. We might be raising anymore, but we're not taking it off the table. And it'll be longer than people realize. The only thing that doesn't get it is the market. It's going to start to, I think, though. I mean, we spent 20 minutes at the top of the show talking about two reasons why, you know, outside of the United States, why there are inflationary pressures. And we haven't even talked about What's happening here, Rebecca? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think we're at a high for long, mm-hmm. not a quick pivot to easing. And, and that is going to have flow through to mortgage rates, to housing, to interest-sensitive sectors, um, commercial real estate, among other things. Uh, so I, I totally agree. I mean, we're not, uh, inflation isn't even close to their year-end target, which is 3.5%. And they're trying to get to 2% before they even start easing or a two-handle. 
Yeah, do you think it's, it's not really the share? Two? Do you think it's? I, I think they would love to have a two, two handle. handle. Oh, two handle. <laughs> right? Two nine nine. Two nine nine. But we're not going to get there this year without some major deflationary shock, which is possible. To well, your we, point with China, yeah. right? Iron ore is down what twenty percent or so. Right. Oil Copper prices is caught, right. low. Right. So maybe commodity prices help, but without wages, without layoffs picking up, I have a hard time seeing us getting there. Yeah, I would just say I, I, you used the term stagflation before. It's something we've talked about for a long time. I think none of us invested in a stagflationary environment. But I think one thing we all kind of know is that it's probably not great for valuations. Right. And so, like, that's the one thing. And I'm going back to what Guy just finished his little soliloquy mm. or whatever that was. Um, you know, it, it's just like the only yeah. thing that's not getting the message is the stock market. But it's not the whole market. It's like 10 stocks yeah. in the stock market. Right. For more insight from CNBC's inaugural CEO Council Summit, stay tuned to CNBC all day tomorrow. Why wouldn't you? Mm. Head on over to CNBC.com slash CEO. Coming up, an office space showdown where our next guest is shorting the entire sector and says the commercial real estate storm will only get worse. Plus, Netflix stock can finally order a beer. The streamer going public 21 years ago today, and option traders are celebrating with some big bets how they are saying happy birthday when Fast Money returns. Almost cursed on TV. Almost. Oh, but I didn't. Not me. I didn't. Uh, welcome back to Fast Money. It's a reopening trade stuck in reverse for NATO. It's SL Green. Boston property is down more than 60% since the pandemic started in March 2020. Many of the problems stemming from scale, uh, stalled return to office plans, and the issues may get worse. Uh, activist investor Jonathan Lid is bearish in office space, warning back in the pandemic's early days a hurricane was coming. He's the chief investment officer at Landon Buildings. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, you came on the show actually at the beginning of the pandemic, and that's when you said you were shorting. So where are we right now in that hurricane phase? Uh, one, uh, one broker described it as scale force winds. Uh, so it's still raging. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were overly optimistic when we wrote that white paper in May of 20. We thought 20% less people in the office, 40% declines in value. We have over 40% less people in the office, and we're probably going to have 50 or 60% declines in the value of the office buildings. So let me ask you, of that, what were, you, what were your assumptions about interest rate at the time? Because that cap rate issue with interest rates here is, you know, that's an enormous Right. I mean, the two things we didn't rate. anticipate was interest rates being where they are, and inflation being where it is. Right, so those two things bigger than the other two. Much bigger. Uh, That Inflation, if you have no rent growth and your vacancy is going up and you have giant operating expenses to run an office building, you're going backwards fast. Uh, and, And that's one of the big surprises that we did not anticipate. We've seen a lot of washout for a lot of the stocks. I mean, SL Green is trading back to like IPO levels back to 1997. So I wanted you to walk through, if you could, uh, a short that you have on currently and just to sort of give us the characteristics of what you're looking for in a short in the space currently. Um, JBG Smith yes. is one of them. Yes. So we, uh, you know, we've been short the space since May of 20. There's not a lot of market cap left in a lot of the companies. And I know a lot of the management teams, I feel bad for them. You know, it's not their choice. It's what's happening. Um, JBG operates in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is one of the toughest markets in the country today. Uh, we have uh, and, and they have a substantial office portfolio. And I'm going to do the rule of 40 for them. Forty uh, percent of their leases come due uh, in the next two or three years. Forty percent of their debt comes to in the ne- next two or three years. Forty um, percent of their rent comes from Amazon and the government. Uh, and they have over 40 percent less people in their buildings. So they have a real challenge. We know Amazon's moving out. 
That's 15% of their rent roll uh, that they're going to lose from their office portfolio. Um, it's going to be really hard. This isn't a work from home story anymore. This is a financing story. You know, it's kind of like the mall business went from the mall problem to the financing problem. Now it's a financing problem. And as these debts come due, uh, there's really nowhere to go because lenders aren't lending to the space. Historic trade, Jonathan. Congratulations. So connected dots. What does it mean for like local economies? Because so many of these businesses are basically built on, predicated on people in office buildings, going to restaurants, shopping in the area. It's got to be catastrophic for a lot of these local businesses. You know, the mayor of Washington, D.C. came out and was complaining that they're not forcing government workers back into the office. And he said, we're going to have to dramatically cut the budget if we don't get people back in the offices to support all the local businesses. It's going to be a real problem. Now, the flip side is it's happening in the suburbs. So where the people are working from home, they're going for coffee, they're having lunches, they're going to the stores, the supermarkets are doing better, but the cities are going to struggle. How will you know when it's time to go long? That's a good question. You know, we monitor it. One of the things we monitor is cell phone data to see if people are going back in the buildings. You know, we could put a box around every office building a company owns, and we're just waiting to see some uptick, and we're just not seeing it. But that's really going to be uh, the signal on the other side. And from your vantage point, how big of an issue is commercial real estate? You know, it's a good question. I get a lot of calls on this, and I'm just going to go through the math quickly. Five trillion of commercial real estate debt. So people think, therefore, it's going to take down the regional banking system. The problem's office, uh, and that's a trillion. Regional banks have about 600 billion. So if you take a third hit to that 600, it's a 200 billion dollar problem for the banks. I think that's manageable. Um, the banks need to lend. They're going to lend to apartments. Apartments are fine. Warehouse and other sectors. Uh, they're not going to lend to office. We hope you'll come back, Jonathan. Great to speak with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank Jonathan you. Lit. Karen, where are you on your trade? Uh, so Boston I'm Long Property. Boston Properties, which uh, is sort of the premier name to be in. So this was really just dipping a toe in the water in terrible sentiment, trying to think about what is what seems to be the easiest short out there. Well, you know, that resident, uh, I'm sorry, office space. Mm-hmm. And I mean, good for him for being so far in front of it. But just seeing that they could get a deal done recently at not a crazy price. So it's I think we're going to end up in this sort of extend and pretend that the banks went through and a lot of them will survive. I don't know. Your question is is the most important one. How do you know when it's over? You don't know till after. So that's why I have a toe in. Right. I could lose a toe. Yeah. <laughs> Just not a foot. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm less optimistic than he was on the regional banks. Mm-hmm. I mean, agreed, it's not a, a catastrophic number, $200 billion. The Fed's Q4 numbers had it at $500 billion of total $700 billion in loans to office space and um, downtown realtors that relied on the offices. So $700 billion total of that five hundred was small banks, small and regional banks. So maybe if you take that number and you tweak it a little bit, but it's still the bulk of the exposure is in the regional banks. And they're not just dealing with commercial real estate. They're also dealing with rates that are going to be higher for longer, yeah. if we're right. And they're dealing with more regulation following the, the, the you know, companies going under that we've seen in the last month or two. Municipal bonds is something we seldom, <laughs> if ever. This may be the first time in fast money history that we've mentioned muni bonds. There's going to be a story there at some point. So, you know, Meredith Whitney, way back in the day, I mean, she yes. was clearly early, but I don't, I'm not saying she answers. But that's, going to, that's coming to a theater near you without question. All right. Coming up. Netflix shares riding a roller coaster this year, and one options trader says, hold on tight for another big drop ahead. That trade and more next. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. Here's the founder and CEO of Vizio. 
this is a place where everything is possible. After college, I started my first career as a technical support engineer. And today I run a, a multi-billion dollar corporation. And uh, 21 years later, we sold millions of TVs. And uh, two years ago, I took the uh, company Vizio Public. And now we're a popular listed on New York Soccer Team. So I'm here, I'm living the American dream. I'm grateful to be here and uh, it's been an awesome journey. The best investment you can make is to sign up for CNBC Pro. Now with a special offer, scan the QR code on your screen or visit cnbc.com slash pro for exclusive stock picks and insights. Moving on. Break out the party hats and champagne. Netflix celebrating 21 years as a public company today. Since its IPO, shares are up an astounding 33,000%. So if you invested $1,000 at the IPO, it would be worth over $330,000 today. That's actually the best investment, not pro. Sorry. Um, <laughs> meantime, Netflix starting to crack down on password sharing in the U.S. sending emails to users today that their accounts are just for people in their household. But option traders spoiling the party with some bearish bets. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, Netflix was one of the busiest single stock options today, trading about a quarter million contracts, 20 percent above average. And unfortunately, it seems like some of those options traders are not that optimistic about this. The most active contract were the weekly 355 puts. We saw over 15,500 of those trading for about $3.21 average buyers, paying a little less than 1% of the current stock price on a bet that the decline that we saw today could continue through the end of the week. How do you like Netflix right here, Dan? Um, I, I think. It's probably getting a little toppy on the chart here. And, and again, just like you want to shoot against some of those things. Another thing that I like to look at is like I love this uh, Netflix to Disney ratio, like the market cap are almost equal again here. And I always feel like when when we get a switch one way or another, maybe we're like right at a precipice of an inflection point or something like that. So the news has been so bad in Disney and it's been really good in Netflix for the last, I don't know, six to nine months. What? Sounds like I can just now I'm inside Dan's head. Oh, oh really? You sounds like sounds like a Dan Nathan pair trade Possibly. is coming to again a, right. that other Possibly. theater near you before, yeah. where Dan is going to sell Netflix and buy Disney on the back of exactly. Yeah. Just and saying. That's what you would do. I, I think we're this. getting there. We're getting there. See? Yeah. It's all all right. uh, Mike, thank you, Mike Co. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up. Target missing the bullseye recently, and there may be more trouble brewing in the retail space. What is going on with the consumer trade? Find out next. More Fast Money in Two. Welcome back to Fast Money. There is some trouble in the charts for two huge consumer stocks. According to one of our traders, Walmart is setting up for an epic six-month double top right now, that troublesome $150 level. And take a look at Target completely erasing its gains for the year. Guy, you alluded to these charts earlier in this program. I don't know what that means, but if it means that I made reference to. Yes, you did. I did. And if you look at, we have that great, in our crack staff and EC, pull a Walmart chart, and we actually said there's a very good chance the stock trends higher in the earnings, gets up to that 155 level and fails. That's what's happened here. And Walmart is not a cheap stock, by the way. And But Target is the one that really concerns me because very quietly, Target's at sort of a six-month low here. In a, in a market that's actually been doing okay, and with a valuation for them that actually makes sense in a situation where they seemingly have got their act back together. Right. So for Target to be trading as poorly as it is, for Walmart to have made that little midterm, midtime double top, you have to be concerned about the retailers here and what does it say about sort of the 
the consumers in this country. What's going on with your Target, Karen? Well, I have Target and Walmart, more Walmart, actually, because I feel like they're in a better position given where they are, where the consumer is, right? If you talk about the grocery business at Walmart versus Target, it's a very, very different thing. And what worked for Target so well during the pandemic was uh, not just groceries, but it was really more of the home goods, the apparel, all of that's much higher margin, much better for Target than it is for Walmart. So while Walmart is definitely more expensive, I feel it's a little bit safer place to hide out. I also feel like they have a better um, inventory management. Remember when Bill Simon came on and called their inventory apocalyptic and then Target's made apocalyptic look adorable? Um, (laughs) So uh, and they still haven't fully recovered from that. Um, So Walmart to me is a little bit safer, even though it's more expensive. Does this speak to Rebecca in your mind, broader retail or is this Walmart and Target? You know, I think there's a lot of micromanagement decisions going on here with how these stocks are trading. When I kind of reflect on that and then try to tie it to the broader consumer picture, the thing that keeps popping in my mind is just the bifurcation within the consumer. So, yes, people are getting more income. Yes, the job market has held up relatively well so far. But even then, you get survey after survey showing that a growing slow but growing part of the population is having trouble making ends meet. Mm -hmm. And so... To the degree that trend continues, which unfortunately it probably will, can the management decisions continue to overcome that and navigate through this? That would be the question in my mind, thinking more about how the macro and micro come together. Yeah. Have you seen that track record, Karen? Do you believe that they will be able to? They were not able to with the supply chain issues. Right. If that happens again, I mean, that was... I think they'll do a better job. I think they will. If that happens again and it's cataclysmic again, it'll be terrible for them. But, I I mean, Walmart, both of them have been through a lot. Walmart more. I think they'll survive. They really will. Will it go down? Yes. That's okay. Up next, final trades. Do not miss Rebecca Patterson at the Virtual Financial Advisor Summit on June 15th. Scan the QR code or visit cnbcevents.com slash financialadvisor to register. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Rebecca. Okay. So I want to sell the MDAX. That's the mid-cap export-oriented China-centric stocks in Germany. I'm doing that because they're still up 7% year to date. They haven't gotten hit yet like the casinos and the ECB is still tightening. So I think that's a good play for China COVID scare. Karen. EWW. Dan. <laughs> Guy sees a double top from Walmart. I see it in Netflix. Huh, yelling. Faulty home, sister. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer.
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.